you got to tell the story because I was asking you about this when you first moved to New York and how your accent got in the way of just doing a couple of like normal things. <laughs> well, there's two things. There's American English and, and British English being actually pretty different. But uh, what you're getting at is it took me five visits to Bed Bath & Beyond when I was going in and asking for a rubbish bin. Um, <laughs> a rubbish bin. The, yeah. On the fifth time, I was like, you definitely do sell them. I'm not leaving. And then finally someone said, oh, you mean a trash can? I was like, yeah, I mean a trash can. Also, um, <laughs> I remember I would go into a deli and get... Um, avocado on toast but uh, you know being british i eat it with butter now butter is pronounced with a d here and it was the t that was throwing people off so i would say butter they'd say what and then because i was <laughs> emphasizing the t it would go downhill from there i mean i had peanut butter put in it once <laughs> I had eggs added to it but anyway everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, we're going to hear from a few highly influential Nordstrom leaders, each helping to strengthen our culture in their own unique way. First, listen as I chat with our Executive Vice President for Designer and Men's and Women's Apparel, Sam Lobbin. There's a lot of drama that goes with designer. There's a lot of big personalities, we'll say. And I don't know, I just, as much as possible, like to try and sort of fly a little bit under the radar of that stuff and just kind of remember why we're in it. You know, it's about product, it's about customers. Then you'll hear my conversation with our men's fashion director, Gian DeLeon. It's acknowledging that dressing is a social act, right? It's a way of saying something to the world without having to say anything at all. And so everything's getting more expressive and guys aren't afraid to get a little bit bolder. And to wrap it up, we'll learn about the service and selling power of social media from one of our top salespeople, Jesse James Barnhold. The best thing about Instagram, it actually gives you a slice of life. I feel closer to some of these customers. I mean, it's great to be able to take care of these people and be part of their lives. It's really quite special. So grab your notepads. This episode is packed full of quality insight to what makes successful retailing today. Right, first, we're going to hear from Sam Lobin, and I've wanted to have Sam on the podcast for a long time now because he's a really interesting guy with a really big job, and he just has a unique journey in the fashion industry. Sam's interest in fashion first grew through an intersection with music in the London club scene, and he started working in retail as soon as he was old enough to work. Though he was mainly looking for a discount on clothes, he found a real passion for the job and has created a very successful career from it. He's gained a lot of great insight into the business as a whole and has become a real tastemaker in the industry. So much so that he just randomly gets approached by iconic celebrities just because they like his style. But what's particularly valuable to us is his strong customer-centric philosophy and positive influence on the men and women he leads. As Sam puts it, he's really just a shop floor guy. He's made a huge impact on our company, and we're lucky to have him on our team.
All right, Sam. Can you You're, hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can, yeah. You got dressed up for me. You put a jacket on and everything. You know, I think, so <laughs> what's been happening recently is that I'm wearing jackets like all the time. People are like, oh, you got dressed up for me. I think most of the time people think that I look really sloppy. <laughs> All right. So Sam's got a really big job with us and he actually recently just got promoted. Um, he had all the designer businesses for us, all categories, men and women. And we put on top of that all men's and women's apparel. So it's a big job, Sam. First of all, congratulations. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> and now don't blow it because uh, we need you to uh, to help us drive uh, more business. So I'm interested to know how you feel about, I mean, you've you've gone from being a guy that had a very narrow thing that you started doing with us, right? You were doing this new concept idea about pop-ins and all discovery and taste making, I guess, in a certain way. And now you've got that responsibility, but you also have a broad commercial responsibility. So talk to me about how you think about fashion and then the commercial responsibility you have as well. Yeah, I think... My thing is really trying to give the right level of context that empowers our teams to make their own calls and their own decisions. I'm definitely not someone that's trying to be in every decision making every call. I don't think I'm always close enough to the customer or the business to to do that. I think uh, that's why we have kind of fantastic merchandising teams out there making those calls. But also it ladders back to a bigger strategy, a bigger idea, so that it does all kind of come together at some point. And getting that that right balance, that stuff's really important. And getting that balance is is tricky, but something that we spend a lot of time trying to get right. And so, Sam, you know, a big part of your background was obviously being a buyer. How do you think about not being just a super buyer? The job's too big for you to literally be the buyer. You mentioned that in terms of you know, empowering those guys to make that call. So how has it changed for you from being a person that could control that part of it to now having to influence the buy and really counting on others to deliver on an aesthetic and a framework that, you know, is for you kind of clear and obvious? For a long time now, my job's really been to try and find great people. One of the biggest things that I'm always sort of looking for whenever I like interview anyone is I don't often go into an interview with many questions. I tend to want to know if someone can hold a 30 to 45 minute conversation about products, namely because I will talk about product to people for hours, if you'll let me. So you know, if we can hold a good conversation about it, then that's kind of you know almost good enough for me. Also, that passion piece is super important because the job's tough. Right, like the hours are super funky. And when it's one o'clock in the morning and you've got to get this order finished tonight before you go to another appointment at 7.30 in the morning tomorrow, the thing that gets that order finished is being really into the job and what you're doing. It's not because someone's told you you need to finish it. Yeah. So most of the people here, particularly the merchandising part of what we do, as you know, Sam, have kind of had a career. They've been here for a lot of years and kind of worked their way up to the process. And it's a little unusual to bring in some from the outside. But I met you because of Jeffrey Kalinsky, the guy mm -hmm. that we used to work with here that ran the designer business and based out of New York. And I remember he, he said to me once, says, you know, you got to meet this Sam Lobin guy. And I'd done this before. You know, he has people recommend for me to meet. And that's always worked out well. So I said, well, sure. And so came to New York and we, we had lunch, right? Or breakfast. What, we had Bre lunch? breakfast. We had, we had breakfast. breakfast. We started talking. And at that time, you know, you were working at Mr. Porter. Mm -hmm. And I was aware of kind of the job you did and stuff. But it was interesting just getting to hear a little about what your ambitions and aspirations were in your career. So if you can kind of pick it up from there and just talk about how it came to be that 
here I am talking to this Brit who's now working at Mr. Porter, lives in New York, and we're a company based out in Seattle. Yeah, well, uh, in case anyone hadn't picked up on on the accent, there's definitely uh, one there. I'm told it's a fairly strong one. Um, and you're right, it was Jeffrey uh, that introduced us. And then we went for breakfast, as you say, you know, in, in full transparency, of course, like knew of Nordstrom, right, from the industry, but definitely didn't have the same kind of understanding of the kind of cultural significance so, you know, on being introduced to you, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go for breakfast with Pete Nordstrom. Sounds great. And as I remember it, we had a, a pretty kind of interesting and somewhat sprawling conversation just about customer and product and what was going on in the market and how kind of retail connected with customers and the importance of culture and relevancy and storytelling. Yeah. You know, and for me, it was we've been on this journey, gosh, for 20 something years trying to elevate our designer luxury business. And what was really appealing to me was you know, your approach and your experience. Well, first of all, you had a whole digital thing because, you know, Mr. Porter was an online business and that mm-hmm. was, it was becoming increasingly important, even in the designer part of the business, which is, you know, was kind of novel in that time. The designer mm-hmm. people weren't sure if they wanted to sell in that way. They wanted to be in physical stores. Yeah, yeah. Try being in 2011, walking around showrooms of an iPad, trying to convince people to sell to a website. <laughs> I, I can say it was novel. But it was pretty clear to anyone in the business, like, this is where this thing is going. So that was appealing. And just, you know, so much of what the designer business has always been was something that was super aspirational in nature and therefore kind of exclusive in nature, which we were trying to democratize that a little bit better and make it more relevant. And so I just remember being really impressed with the authentic and natural way that this business was to you. I mean, you had a real appreciation for the high touch nature of what it is, but also the commercial part of what it could be. Yeah, I guess for me personally, I really grew up doing this, right? Like, so I I started on the shop floor of a men's boutique in St. Albans, which is where I'm from, which is like 19 miles north of central London. So how old were you at this point? Well, I mean, this is going to sound very uh, like Harry Potter for anyone that's not English, but <laughs> in England, you have to be 15 and three quarters um, to work. <laughs> and uh, as soon as I got my... Um, uh, I, f- I forget what you call it, my national insurance card, which basically is, it's like your social security. You can get a job. So as soon as I got that through, I went in there, which was really because I knew that they gave like a decent discount on clothes and you could <laughs> you could buy stuff and then like have it on, on drip, we used to call it. So you'd get them written down in a book and every week your wages would be docked. Oh. I don't think I ever actually got any money <laughs> from that job, <laughs> but I ended up with like being a 16 year old with a decent amount of Stone Island jacket. <laughs> And then uh, when I was 18, I went to work on the shop floor of Selfridges and got a job in the buying office when I was 19. So the reason I bring that up is saying, like, I've kind of been this in this forever from my perspective. And I mean, I don't mean that in any kind of like lofty way. I just mean it in a supernatural way of like experience and really seeing how real people connect with products, right? Either from the shop floor, i.e. serving customers, because best way to get through a a Saturday on a shop floor is to sell stuff to as many people as possible because the time goes by. But then also just kind of hanging out and growing up in it as a kind of like late teen, early 20 year old, uh, working for Selfridges and and knocking around like fashion parties in London, etc. So was your personal identity at that point kind of tied up into fashion you know everyone has a thing that kind of helps express who they are mm-hmm. when was it like hey, look at this is something that's an interest to me and something that i feel like i want to pursue like how did that all come to be so music and clothes has always been my thing 
I, I, I jokingly say, like, I am useless talking about sport. I don't know anything about anything. Um, so when I'm at, a, like, a barbecue or some such over here and there's that invariable moment where all the blokes are stood together talking about football, I kind of want to drift off and talk about handbags, which the, the <laughs> girls, if I'm honest, because I'm better at it. Um, but music and clothes. And again, like, being in the UK, those two things do go hand in hand. Right, like the British subculture that goes around like drinking in pubs, dancing in pubs and the clothes you're wearing is really strong. And that's a big part of personal identity for me. I think, you know, my dad was a retailer. My granddad was a greengrocer. So like sold fresh fruit and veg. To me, it's like I've kind of grown up around some form of serving customers and retail forever. And this like fashion retail is a very good way of marrying the two for me is that something that I feel very drawn to insofar as retail, but also clothes is really my thing. It's a very big kind of passion of mine that I give up a lot of time to, if I'm honest. Tell me about like being a young person in London and how music influenced you and that became some kind of logical connection to fashion. <laughs> when I was 10, I went to a like a disco and my dad said, well, you can't go in like a sweatsuit because at the time I was just knocking around in like Adidas sweats and stuff. So we went to an unnamed off-price retailer. We went to TK Maxx, as they're known of in the, um, in the UK. Okay. Uh, and he bought me a Ben Sherman shirt. And uh, like genuinely from that point forward, so I was like, oh, yeah, I'm quite into the clothes thing. Um, he was always really into music, like particularly kind of Northern Soul, mods, disco, like Soul Train, Philadelphia Soul wow. type vibe. All of that has a pretty strong aesthetic that goes with it, especially like the Northern Soul mod thing in the UK, because there's... There's such a sort of British working class culture of combining clothes, fashion with like all of your other kind of cultural tastes. You know, the car you drive, the scooter you ride, the party that you go to, the music you dance to, the whole thing. So I've kind of always been fascinated with that. And I'll say <laughs> you've pretty evenly got like the lads in the pub who are just there for the football and the lads in the pub that are there for the football and to have a dance afterwards. <laughs> I fall into a, uh, a somewhat niche third category where I didn't really care much about the football and I just wanted to dance. <laughs> but, but that's like, for me, it was, that was growing up. You know, pub culture starts a bit earlier in England as well. So I kind of get this impression with all British musicians. They're like, they're just walking around town. When you live there, like, do you bump into people like that? I mean, do you ever bump into kind of these music heroes of you just because they're just around in pubs? And uh, You would... I remember being on the shop floor of Selfridges and I was just in there like uh, scooting around. I worked there at the time, but I, I wasn't working when this happened. And kind of out of nowhere, uh, Paul McCartney <laughs> came over and said, oh, I really like your coat, mate. He said that to you? I said, yeah, he said it to me. <laughs> um, I said it was a, a Raph Simmons coat. I said, oh, it's Raph Simmons. It's over there. And I remember he made a joke. He said, oh, yeah, but, you know, I couldn't buy the same coat in case we were both wearing it at the same place and then we'd have to call each other to make sure that we weren't wearing it and he kind of he riffed <laughs> nice. on this whole little joke and I was like yeah okay I mean, it's Paul McCartney got yeah. something so one thing you know you just mentioned this like a guy like Paul McCartney come up to you on the shop floor and just saying I like your coat this is a theme for you as I know you and something that never happens to me or God, anyone I know that famous people and style icon people approach you because they think you're cool. Not They don't know who you are. They don't know what you do. So you got to tell the Kanye West story. Uh, I've never committed this to an audio file. Yeah, yeah you're going to talk about it. <laughs> so uh, Roz, my wife, was 
less than a week away from having Harry. I say that because she was very, very pregnant, right? like <laughs> full sort of bowling ball style pregnant. And we lived in Soho in New York at the time. And um, we'd gone for a walk and we'd ended up in the Prada store. And I think we walked in just behind Kanye. So we kind of knew he was in there. But <laughs> Roz and I are both the same in terms of like, that meant that we just did a beeline in the opposite direction. Not that's not a comment on Kanye West whatsoever. Personally, nice guy. As it, it turns out, it's more just like wanting to avoid any situation whereby, like, there might be like celebrity or spotlight or fanfare, right? Like, we're pretty sort of chill, yeah. under the radar style people as much as we possibly can be. Uh, long story short, sort of fast forward, Rose has seen some sort of Prada hiking boots that she liked the look off, and and she was trying them on, which in and of itself was quite funny because she's very pregnant sort of trying to get these like <laughs> lots of laced boots on and I was just sort of like lounging in a in a chair and uh kind of out of nowhere he came up and said hey you two look cool what'd you do and we ended up having like a 20 25 minute chat again it's part of your mystique Sam that I think <laughs> makes you kind of uniquely qualified to have this designer job and that actually led to you and I having a conversation with Kanye West just to perhaps about how we might mm. be able to do business together, which was, I mean, we're on the phone, this three-way phone conversation, yeah. and I'm like just listening. Wow, this is amazing. And I could kind of continue to hear you chuckling kind of in the background. I mean, from my perspective, I just joined. So um, I think, well, it was like pretty recent after me joining. I think it was Yeah, you don't even look at a couple months, I think. Yeah. So, you know, if you look at that from another vantage point, like, you know, I just joined Nordstrom and I was on a three-way phone call with Kanye West and Pete Nordstrom. So <laughs> it was quite a thing for me as well, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? It's I think it speaks to how opportunities come about in our business too, these relationships and stuff, how many doors it opens for you. And I, I'm always kind of impressed and appreciative of if we're in the fashion circles or at shows, wherever. And that's totally the velvet rope place, which gives you, you know, access. It gives you information and it gives you and gives us credibility. So I think it's awesome. I remember there's a lady called Anita Barr. She's like very well standing within fashion circles. And Anita was one of my first bosses at Selfridges. And I always remember her saying like pretty early on, like, stay humble, don't get trapped by arrogance, just kind of remember why we're in it. You know, it's about product, it's about customers. And like, I've just tried to kind of cling to that for as long as I possibly could do. And it's, all the other stuff is great, but really it's about product and it's about customers. So all of those, (laughs) you know, I don't often tell any of those stories, at least not outside of, you know, sort of one-on-one kind of off to the side style ways, because I think someone might get a kick out of it. But you know, even when we're in kind of the more fanciful situations, there's typically like, there's a lot of drama that goes with designer. There's a lot of big personalities, we'll say. And yes. I don't know, I just, as much as possible, like to try and sort of fly a little bit under the radar of that stuff and, and try and focus on getting stuff done. Well, look, I, I first of all, I want to thank you for, you know, spending this time and sharing some stories with me. But I mean, it confirms all the things that I know about you and why you're successful in your job. I mean, you bring such kind of personal interest and engagement, which is always important, I think, if you're going to be successful at anything. 
And then just kind of that whole grounding about selling and customers. And there's a big difference between talking about that being a platitude and actually how you conduct yourself and how you live. And you've been such a great cultural fit here, even though you come from a totally different background. I mean, it's just the way that you've been able to connect, you know, with the people that work here and get them aligned around the mission. And because to your point, we need everyone kind of working on that together. That's part of your your leadership responsibility and also what you can do for us, you know, from the outside, you know, working with vendors and stuff. And you're really good at it. Well, thank you. And what I'd say, like the other side of that is the, you know, if you're in it for the right reasons, if you're in it for that kind of like looking after those around you and you're passionate about product and want to look after customers as much as possible, you know, I've found it very much, I've Nordstrom, I mean, I've found to be a business that kind of both enables and empowers that kind of thinking. So, Thank you, too, for cultivating that kind of culture. You got it. All right, Sam, have a good one. Great. Thank you very much. Now we're going to hear from Gian Delion, our men's fashion director. You may ask, what the heck does that mean? What exactly does he do? And I'm going to let Gian describe that. But essentially what he helps do is connect us to the zeitgeist of trend and fashion, largely through his social media. He works with Sam and our buying teams and then helps figure out how we can translate these stories to customers. All right, so um, we're talking to Gian Delion. And Gian's a guy that I see occasionally when I go to New York, because that's where he's based. I'd like you to tell everybody what your job is exactly with us. Sure. Because it's kind of a unique job. Yeah, I mean, you know, my job as the men's fashion editorial director, it's a super unique role that, you know, my background in editorial heading into commerce uh, is really well suited for. So prior to Nordstrom, I was at High Snobiety for a long time, and I've sort of always worked in the men's lifestyle media space, you know, whether it's for GQ or Complex. So I always like to say I've always been selling things, but now I'm doing it much more explicitly. Okay, so explain a little bit when you say you're at High Snobiety, it was a media company and you were essentially creating content. Is that right? Taking fashion information and creating content. Can you talk a little bit about your background that brought you to us with that skill set? I mean, I think, you know, for menswear in particular, the customer differs in that he's all about the why behind the buy. And I think the conversation around how we talk about menswear has gotten more casual. You know, you want to take a peek under the hood of a car in the same way you might want to talk about a fully canvas suit or, you know, a good year welted shoe. Uh, And the fact that, you know, you look at NBA, you look at soccer, of course, you look at football, you know, us working with Tom Brady. It's clear that men and fashion and style That's part of the conversation now. And I think what I do is connecting Nordstrom with that larger conversation in a way that shows what we stand for and how we can show up in, you know, this vibrant, dynamic community of menswear enthusiasts and also just everyday guys who want to look good in their clothes. So tell me how it came to be that you got into the orbit of what's happening here at Nordstrom. So, you know, I've always been a storyteller and again, just the kind of person that wants to take a peek under the hood and get people enthusiastic about stuff I'm into by nature of why I think it's cool. And when I started working with Sam was 
when I was at High Snobiety and we started covering what he was doing with New Concepts. And, and it was really amazing for me to you know see a company like Nordstrom embrace something as hyper-specific as an archival Japanese vintage curator. And I'm like, that's that's amazing that they can go from telling a story as big as Kim Jones making his menswear debut at, at Dior, which is you know very much fashion with a capital F, to then doing something that feels very community driven. It, it just really showed me the width and breadth of what Nordstrom, you know, was willing to do and and the worlds that it can inhabit. So, Gian, tell me what it's like working with Sam. You guys are literally working out of the same office there in New York. What what's a day look like for you guys yeah. in terms of how you interact? Well, he's in the room now, so I have to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean working with Sam is great. I think we connect over product. You know, I think it's just two sort of different approaches. Sam definitely started in retail. I started on the media side, but that passion and enthusiasm for brands, what they make, and you know, really just finding the best in class things that are out there for customers to buy and discover is where we sort of meet in the middle. So, yeah, so talk a little bit about, you know, you're a guy that's into fashion stuff and it's not just your job. I, I know a little bit from knowing you that this is your life and the things that you're personally interested in too. So have you always been that guy growing up? Were you like the natty fashion guy in, in school? I, I get dressed every day, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a photo of me, I think when I was maybe five or six and I'm wearing, you know, a blazer, a tweed blazer, not unlike the one I'm wearing today and a grid check uh, window pane button down with no tie, like buttoned all the way to the top. And like this pair of corduroy pants that, you know, ironically are wide legged enough that they would be super on trend now. So, you know, I've always been interested in clothes, but you know, I'm more interested in the uniforms of subcultures, you know, music and other tastes and, and other parts of the lifestyle into, you know, why people wear what they wear. I think menswear in particular, it's acknowledging that dressing is a social act, right? It's a way of saying something to the world without having to say anything at all. And so there's all these different layers and codes that go into it. So are you a big consumer of media generally so that you've got your finger on the pulse of all that stuff? You must follow all kinds of different news or influencer sources that that talk about trends and fashion all the time. I mean, I've always been, you know, an avid fan of style and fashion. Uh, I, you know, grew up reading GQ magazine. So to work there was definitely a dream come true. Uh, but I was also a defense contractor. So <laughs> that was one of my first jobs. I didn't know in that. In Washington, D.C. Yes, <laughs> I was a defense contractor. I, I would be going to, you know, the Pentagon in like a suit and tie where, you know, I, I really learned a lot about tailoring, how to look presentable. I came of age really of this generation of, of young men who, you know, wanted to look like a quote unquote adult. And then something happened as we got older, which is we realized we were sort of the ones writing the rules of what that meant. And so that's why, you know, you have a lot more casual culture now. You have people are saying that, that tailoring is in decline and you don't have to wear a suit anymore. Uh, but, you know, as part of that generation that was sort of rewriting those rules, but also just really getting into clothes as a form of, you know, authentic self-expression. So where did you go to college? I went to George Mason University in Virginia. And so what did you study there? So I was a English major uh, with a concentration in poetry of all things. And then my minor was in, and this is dating myself, it was called electronic journalism. Electronic journalism. Yeah, you know, I was an English major, so I, I applaud that. That's that's a good major. So you talk about style being part of your life, but then you were a defense contractor. So how do you go from being an English major, George Mason, a person that's really into music and fashion, to being a defense contractor? So I was in uh, the social media department. 
So I, I was contracted by the Defense Department to help run their socials, to help run certain blogs. To I mean, one of the funniest things was I I did record some podcasts for the Defense Department about you know World War II squadrons. One of them was like an Asian squadron based out of the Philippines for Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. To rewriting a poem for Toby Keith to read to the troops during the holidays. And this is during the Obama administration, so it had to be as non-denominational as possible. You know, we couldn't say it was a night before Christmas, it was twas a night in December, and um, just had to make it, you know, as general as possible. So I'm curious, how do you think about your own personal taste? Is it in any way in conflict to trying to come up with ideas that are going to appeal to customers broadly. Yeah, I think for me, it's just like classical music and jazz, right? If you're a classically trained musician, you're better equipped to understand what makes jazz music so great because you can see where, you know, someone's diverged from the path that they could have gone this direction with this note, but they intentionally did this. And it gives you a better understanding of, you know, the iconoclasts who broke the rules because you had a better understanding of them. I mean, from a Fresh Prince perspective, I always used to say, if you sort of dress like Carlton, you have more license to act like Will. But that was before the Oscars a couple of years ago. That's a good reference <laughs> so, right there. So I can imagine one of the ways you get validation, this is how things show up out there in social media. So what are you looking for when you're creating this content out there and how it gets published like through Instagram, shared out there? And like, how do you know that you really got something that's getting people's attention? Well, I think for us, you know, we have the opportunity to really communicate things with an intent of where we want to stand in menswear. In the same way we do in our stores, right, where we have our windows and then we have, you know, these very strong ways of visually merchandising product to really have a customer journey through the store. Basically, that's the approach with our Instagram is why can't we do that digitally? Like we can tell anniversary stories, we can tell tailoring stories, we can even do Instagram lives with, you know, comedians like Adam Pally to talk about uh, a shoe that we're carrying that he did a collaboration with. That storytelling aspect, it shifted from, you know, this thing where you would just go look at photos, comment, and it still is that, but the editorialization of it, it's almost like a magazine. Right. It's like we've done these little stories on IG that exist both in story form, but also on the feed that almost feel like flipping through a magazine spread. And I think that's been the greatest really emerging way that we've been able to speak to how Instagram users has, have evolved and how the platform has evolved. So, Gian, here's your chance to blast out the thousands of people. Give them the Instagram address so they can find this. At Nordstrom Men. <laughs> That, that should be easy us. to find. At Nordstrom Men. And so, Gian, thank you for um, connecting the dots for me. And, and I, I appreciate the job that you do. I, th I think it's inspirational. And I know our, our people get a lot out of it. And I, I think to the extent, you know, customers have discovered the work you're doing and they get exposed to it directly. I think they really enjoy that, too. So thanks so much. Thanks, Pete. Now we're going to hear from Jesse James Barnhold, a super talented guy and one of our top salespeople. Jesse has found a way to expand his business far beyond the four walls of the store to reach customers all over the US. And he's been able to do it in such a genuine and authentic way with customer relationships as the main focus. 
Jesse's had quite a journey up to this point, and you'll want to stick around to hear his entire story, particularly the heartwarming message left by his father at the end. Jesse's approach to his job and attitude about his career is so refreshing that we're extremely proud to lift him up as an example of what real success looks like today. Hey, Jesse, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic, Pete. How are you? I'm doing great. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Oh, absolutely. So, Jesse, I mean, I, I always think about you when Sam Lobin calls you Jesse James because he gets such a kick out of that because he's a Brit and he thinks it's you were named after, like, some Western character. But your, your name is Jesse Barnhold. But do, do, why does he think you go by Jesse James? I go by Jesse James because when I was a, a men's salesperson in Horton Plaza, there was actually two Jessies. You know, and someone was calling us tall Jesse and short Jesse. Well, let's go by your middle names. And someone goes, okay, well, he's Jesse Richard and I'm Jesse James. And a customer goes, Jesse James. Oh my gosh, I'll never forget that. And from there, I'm like, oh, then that's done. I'm Jesse James now and forever forward. <laughs> well, see, now that's good to know. So the reason Jesse's on my radar is he's a super accomplished salesperson, one of our absolute best. I don't know if people realize how hard selling shoes is. It's not easy. And I will tell you that I hear about you in market. You know, when I'm in the designer market and we talk about distribution or whatever's happening and it ends up coming like, well, you got that guy working for you that's selling our shoes, that guy in Pittsburgh. Like, it's amazing. And what's great (laughs) about it is when you're talking to designer brands and it's about distribution, it's usually about New York and Miami and Chicago and LA or something. And then we use you as a proof point. Look how many shoes this guy, Jesse sells out of Pittsburgh. And that has helped us as an unlock for distribution in a lot of places. I just want to thank you. You're what you do there has an impact uh, on the company. And I love using you as an example. So if you could just start by uh, introducing yourself and give us a little history about your time at Nordstrom. Okay, yeah. I've actually been with a company going on 17 years. I started off in uh, La Jolla, California. What did you do before you came to Nordstrom? I worked for Enterprise Rent-A-Car. So how is it that you said, okay, I'm going to go work at Nordstrom now? What, what was that about? <laughs> it was interesting. My girlfriend at the time was an assistant to the personal stylist Jackie Markham in store 361 who she's always one of the top salespeople still to date. And she goes, oh, we're hiring at Nordstrom. You should check us out. I was like, oh, awesome. You know, and I applied and I met with a manager named Michael Reddit. And he goes, when can you start? And I'm like, I can start tomorrow. He goes, okay, you're starting tomorrow. Just like that. And I stick her shoes for the first four days and I loved it. I didn't even know I liked shoes at the time. <laughs> and it was men's shoes? It was men's shoes. I mean, it was pretty crazy, but like that floor and that store, taught me so much. I mean, there's still now in 2022, there's still three people who are in the top 20 that work at that store. So I was taught and recruited and trained by some of the best, which was, it was incredible. And it actually changed my life. So talk a little bit about your journey that, that brings you to where you are today in Pittsburgh. So me and my wife, cause I, I had a wife at this time now, she always wanted to move back to Pittsburgh cause that's where she's from. And a women's shoes position opened in Pittsburgh. So I jumped at the chance and I took women's shoes. You're a good husband because I don't think most people are signing up to move from San Diego to Pittsburgh. I mean, no knock on Pittsburgh, but San Diego is a pretty awesome place to live. It, it was pretty much when, when I met her, she said, hey, listen, we're getting serious. I'm letting you know if it goes where I think it's going to go, we're going to move back to Pittsburgh. So you can sign up or you cannot. I mean, she was very forthcoming, which was really good. And I appreciated that. 
So I was in women's shoes only for a couple months. And then the manager is like, Hey, listen, we need you back in men's shoes. That's, that's where your passion is. That's where you're good. And, and that was in about 2015. And we just started getting like a little smackle of designer shoes. So I was trying to think of how we could start selling them. So I created an Instagram account name and I started posting pictures of shoes. And after the first week to boot New York reposted me and I was like, Oh my God, I just got reposted. This is incredible. Like this, this huge company that is, makes amazing shoes reposted me. And I was freaking out. I was telling everyone. And then nothing ever happened like that again for like another six months. But it was so cool. And I was just so energized by it. I just kept on taking pictures of shoes and posting. Originally, I was doing it just to show whoever's walking in the new stuff that we get every day. And then my assistant manager came to me and she goes, hey, do you know you have 60 unread messages? I go, what do you mean? And she clicked a button. And all these messages popped up and it says, hey, I want to order this. Hey, can I please order this shoe? Hey, I live in Arkansas. Can you send this? And as soon as that happened, a switch went off in me and said, wow, this is real. And this is incredible. And I can sell to more than the people who are just walking in, people who don't live in the state. You know, it's you do such a great job of revealing the shoe. It's almost like you're you're helping someone. They're sitting in the chair and you open the lid and you you show the shoe. And it's super compelling the way that you figured out how to do that. And um, I follow you on Instagram. It's designer men's, right? Is that what it is? I'm going to give yes, you a sir. chance yep, to now broadcast what it is so more people can follow you. <laughs> what is your address there on Instagram? My Instagram name is designer.men's. And I'll talk about this too. Since COVID, it definitely pivoted a lot because... I sell a lot to women now. If I could somehow change the name to designer.all, um, <laughs> it's probably 70% of my customers' Instagram are now female. Did you do anything to amplify that and get all these followers? Or how is it that you just innocently started an Instagram account and then started having all these followers? How did that happen? Well, I, I do something, I, I kind of coined this, I call it a digital thank you note because our practices, we used to write the handwritten thank you notes. Well, I'm doing it digitally. So I would take a picture of the item. I would say thank you. And then I would actually tag the customer or their Instagram name. Oh, um, that's clever. Them. That's good. And most people just click add to story. So they add what I sold them to their story. So all their followers sees me. So did this all happen kind of by happenstance and serendipity? Or did, did you have a plan like that you knew this is how this was going to work? I, I think like in everything, you figure out what works and what doesn't. And when you see some traction in something, you can kind of perfect it. Uh, I'm obsessed with this. I, I really am. And I think obsession is going to beat talent every time. I am absolutely obsessed with selling, taking care of my customers, Instagram, trying to figure out algorithms, times to post. I mean, the first thing in the morning when I wake up, the first thing I do is check my phone and I post a picture or a reel that I already have set up for the night before. Because usually when a customer or anyone wakes up, the first thing they do is they turn their alarm off on their phone and a lot of them scroll social media. So I want to be their first thing that they see in the morning. And I want to be the last thing they see at night. So how many people, you know, like we used to have this personal book and everyone knew all their customers. How many customers do you think you have now that you would consider like, yeah, these are my personal customers. If I sent them a note, they'd know who I am and they would be open to hearing my recommendation. How many people do you think you have? Probably a thousand. I mean, the best thing about Instagram, it actually gives you a, a slice of life. So when you follow someone, like example, I follow, say, Michelle, and I know Michelle has two daughters. I know that they just had their first day of fourth grade and second grade. I know what clothes she wears. I know she just went and celebrated a birthday at a restaurant. 
because you can see what's going on in their lives through Instagram where personal book never really told you that it was just a name and you'd have to write notes. Right. Well, this is visual notes so you can actually go through and check up and then you can actually comment and you're, I feel closer to some of these customers. I mean, my five best customers I've never met. I got Nick, New Jersey. I got Justine in New York, Tony in California. Like example, Tony, I'll sell anything from shoes for his daughter, shoes to his granddaughters, clothes for him and his partner. It's great to be able to take care of these people and be part of their lives. That's amazing. Um, I just feel so connected to them. It's really quite special. It really is. Well, you know, what's obvious to me is it's you've developed a level of trust. I mean, they've invited you in to have that access, but that's because you've earned that. I, I think that's really amazing. So, hey, so Jesse, have you always been an achiever? I mean, you strike me as a guy, you've, you've got a plan. It's not happened by accident. You're making this stuff all happen. Have you always been that kind of guy? Well, growing up, um, my mom was a single mom and uh, she struggled with alcoholism. And we didn't have a lot growing up. I never was able to get a haircut. Uh, Her friend would cut my hair and it'd always be lopsided or lumpy. Um, One time we were playing baseball. I think it was like eight years old and my shoe, my soul blew out. And my dad, who was kind of like my stepdad at the time, just went to his van, grabbed some duct tape and duct taped my shoe and said, there you go. You're all set. And I had to wear that shoe for the rest of the year because I only got one pair of shoes for the year. That's, that's all I got. So I'm very driven because I don't ever want to be like that again. And I want to be successful to where I can help out others to where I can help out the less fortunate. And hopefully in the later parts of my life, just be a philanthropist. I I really would like to do that and just give back like uh, shoes that fit is a huge cause for me every year. Um, Why don't you talk a little bit about what shoes that fit is, what that program is. Shoes that fit is basically a program that gives a kid a brand new pair of shoes that actually fits. Being a kid is hard enough and they shouldn't have to be worried about ridicule from their peers about if their shoes are dirty or too small or not the latest and greatest. And Shoes That Fit does that. And they found that when a kid has a good fitting pair of shoes, they behave better. They pay attention in class more. And it just makes their life easier because they're not worried about materialistic things. So it's a great organization. I know we've partnered with them and Nike this year to give over, I think, 40,000 pairs of shoes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, we do a lot of different philanthropic things. This may be one of the, the most impactful, and you described it, I think, well. And it, it fits, you know, because we sell a lot of shoes. That's that's our heritage. And it's it's been a fun charity for us to be involved with. And I'm so glad that you're personally connected to that. It's cool. It's, I think it's super rewarding for us to be able to do some good out there in the communities with this program. Oh, absolutely. And, and just seeing the, the faces on these kids, one of my customers got a, a handwritten letter and, and it brought me to tears. The kid was so excited. And he said, if, if I get mud on my shoes, I will wash it off right away. I love my shoes. Thank you so much. And just his letter was just so touching. And so he wrote and, to a customer just, because this customer helped contribute to this program. Is that why? Yep. She, um, through my links, uh, my stories, she um, donated and he got his shoes and he wrote her a letter. And then she sent me a copy and she goes, I've been crying for the last couple hours. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and then so I great. started crying because I get, I get really emotional about this because it's, it's a really important cause. And I mean, it fits so well with us. I mean, no pun intended, but it really does fit great with what we do and our our beliefs and everything like that. So tell me, like, what's a great day look like for you, Jesse? 
the most exciting thing that I get, it's when I find that needle in a haystack for a customer. When that customer has been looking for a shoe in a you know, size 13 or 14, because maybe they have a bigger size foot. And it's like, hey, I finally found it. It's available. And they send me their phone number. They send consent and that item gets shipped out to them. And they're like, oh my gosh, Jesse, thank you so much. You made my day. But the pleasure is all on my side because I'm so excited that I'm making them happy. It's almost uh, like when you give your kids a gift and they're so happy. They're like, dad, I love you. Thank you so much. It's that feeling every day, nonstop. So a lot of people say, hey, I have to go to work. Every morning, I'm like, yes, I get to go to work today. I'm so excited. So it's, it's such a different view. And, and it, my life has been forever changed. So I, I'm grateful. I'm humbled. I'm, I'm here to help anyone who wants to know and learn. And I'm blessed to be at such a great company as Nordstrom. Well, look, it's inspiring for me. I mean, I know your story, but it's inspiring to hear you talk about it. I, I just want to tell you that um, I think you're an amazing guy and you do a great job. And uh, we, we make a big deal out of successful salespeople because that's really how our bread's buttered around here, right? I mean, you guys are the literal connection point to customers and whatever reputation Nordstrom has, it's really a result of all these interactions that happen between people, right? Now, it could be done digitally or it could be done in a store, but... Why don't you give people a little idea about what this has meant, really, I think, for you just personally and how much you sell. I mean, you sell a lot of shoes. Yeah, um, I've been pinching myself for the last two and a half years, and I got probably a big red mark because I'm waiting for it to end or slow down, and I haven't seen any signs of that yet. Today, my phone's been going off nonstop when we're sitting here, and I'll be processing orders probably until 9 o'clock tonight, too, as well. It's um, Back when I was doing this and COVID hit, they, they made a, a Jesse video on me and they showed it, you know, to you and to all the store managers and the rack store manager and to all the salespeople. And it was great. I was having store managers call me, Hey, can you talk to my team? And Hey, I, I remember I did a call for all of Canada, which was really, really cool. And I, I remember I sent this video to my dad and um, <laughs> he was so excited and he, he called me and it was actually the last voicemail I got from him. And he just, he just said, Jesse, I can't believe how amazing you're doing. He goes, this is unbelievable. The things that they said about you. He goes, I just can't believe it. Call me back. And, and then my dad passed away like two months later, but I still have that voicemail. And that voicemail makes me so proud for, uh, the company I work for, the recognition I've received for doing just what I think is just normal. I'm just really blessed. So it was, it was really incredible. Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. At the tone, please record your message. Hi, Jess. I just watched the video that you sent me. That was just amazing. The way she spoke of you was just absolutely, uh, I just can't believe it's you. You are so good at what you're doing. So proud of you. Give me a call when you get a chance. Bye. Wow. I didn't know that story. That That's nice to hear. And 
I think it's cool that he's proud of you. You should have been. I mean, you're you're a real leader here, and and you just have become, you've become that just by how you do your job, not because someone proclaimed, okay, Jesse's the guy. You know, not everyone does that. Not everyone's wired that way, but it does help show what's possible. And I, so again, I just want to tell you, I appreciate it. You become kind of a, a legend of shoe selling around Nordstrom, and it's fantastic. So thanks so much, Jesse. Oh, thank you. Seriously, um, I, I couldn't be happier where I work. I couldn't be happier in my department. My manager's great. You are great. That the things that you guys do for us, and the treatment, and the way you guys listen, it, it really is incredible. The fact that I'm talking to the president of the company, I, I feel like I know you because I've been listening to your podcast. Yeah, and I've talked to All you. Right. And, Thank um, you. It's really awesome. All right. I appreciate it. Jesse, you're the best. Great talking to you. Thank you, Pete. Have a good one. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to Nordstrom.com slash Nordy Podcast, where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story to tell about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to NordyPodcast at Nordstrom.com. Now I got to tell you, we've been getting some feedback and it's exciting to see And on some upcoming episodes, we're going to start incorporating some of this feedback we've been getting. The good, the bad, and the ugly. All of it is helpful for us and we find constructive. You can also give us a call and leave us a voicemail. And you just might hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. We love hearing from you. Drop us a line and be part of the Nordy Pod. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with industry icon, Leonard Lauder. My mother, Mrs. S.G. Lauder, she was always someone who loved to make women beautiful. She started to uh, make creams. And I remember when I was in my high chair, as she and my father would cook the creams in the kitchen stove. And she would mix them and try them on. She and my father, they had a vision and ambition. This conversation was really interesting because Leonard is just a legend in the business. Essentially, the Estee Lauder company created what you would know today as the modern-day beauty business. They've evolved from a family-founded business and the high-touch nature of that to be really a world leader. We have a lot of shared history with Leonard and his company, and I think what you'll find really interesting is his genuine enthusiasm for what he is selling and how to interact with people. I always love talking with Leonard, and I think you're going to love hearing his stories. So join us next time on The Nordy Pod.